Man, I'm grateful to be here. Have you ever noticed that when you receive a gift from someone, that that gift isn't always as free as you thought it would be? You ever notice that? What about when you're at a Christmas gathering, large family Christmas gathering, and you're there with aunts and uncles and cousins, and you're getting to the point where you're going to open gifts. Maybe you've done the you know, draw a name out of the hat and you're just exchanging one gift with somebody in that setting of a large family celebration. And you happen to receive a gift from that distant cousin. And you open that gift and the moment you open it, you realize how am I going to give off the impression I'm excited about this gift. It's one of those house decorations you're thinking, what in the world is this? And why would anybody want this in their home? And, and you begin to feel something about that gift that's not so free. It begins to exact a cost from you. And it gets even more significant when that cousin says, Hey, I'm going to be in town in about a month. I can't wait to come by and visit you. And all of a sudden you realize that you have to put that in your house somewhere for that visit from that cousin. And you recognize that that gift has exacted a cost from you. The cost of obligation. You know that cost? What, what about when you receive a gift from someone and this particular gift is actually a gift that has no strings attached. It's an all expense paid vacation to your favorite place in the world with your favorite people in the world doing the things you love to do most in the world. Now that kind of gift still exacts a cost of obligation. It's just that that obligation feels less like a cost and more like blessing. You know the difference? The grace of God is such a gift. You know one of the greatest mistakes that we tend to make regarding God's grace? Is that it is a gift that does not carry obligation. God's grace is a gift but it is a gift that carries great obligation. You know, one of the other mistakes we can tend to make related to God's grace is that we tend to sometimes miss that grace's obligation is the greatest of all blessings. God's grace is a gift, but it has great obligation. And its obligation is the greatest blessing of life. Now Joshua chapter 10 is a story through which we should see God's amazing grace. But in order to see God's grace in this story, I want to remind you of a couple things. Israel has not been promised the land they're going in to the land to take because of their own righteousness. Israel is not going in to take the land from the inhabitants of the land because Israel is righteous. No, the reason that Israel is being given the land is because of God's grace. A promise was made to Abraham and his descendants that God would give the land to a people out of 
grace, not because they deserved it or they're better than any other people of the world. It was God's gracious gift. Now, no doubt the inhabitants of the land are deserving of God's divine judgment because of their wickedness. But we cannot miss the fact that Israel is a rebellious people who are receiving the land because of God's gracious gift. Okay, so let's work through the story in Joshua chapter 10 together. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to look at Joshua chapter 10 as we read through this story scene by scene. I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible this morning. If you'll follow along with your version, we're going to start with scene 1, verses 1 through 5. Now King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had captured Ai and completely destroyed it, treating Ai and its king as he had Jericho and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were living among them. So Adonai Zedek and his people were greatly alarmed because Gibeon was a large city like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai and all its men were warriors. Therefore King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem sent word to King Hoham of Hebron, King Piram of Jarmuth, King Japhia of Lachish, and King Debir of Eglon, saying, Come up and help me. We will attack Gibeon, because they have made peace with Joshua and their Israelites. So the five Amorite kings, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces, advanced with all their armies, besieged Gibeon, and fought against it. Have you ever been out in the middle of nowhere? far away from the lights of the city, all with the purpose of seeing the night sky? Ever been out in the, no, in the middle of nowhere watching for the transition from day to night? You know, the earliest evidences of the transition from day to night often begins with just a little twinkle a little glimmer and you begin to look into the sky and you see that first little glimmer and you think to yourself is that night's first star and then as the day is enveloped by night that first glimmer of night's first star becomes this bright beacon shining so brightly and then all of a sudden, before you know it, the entire night sky has been just enveloped by the light of the stars. And it's as bright as ever. Have you experienced a moment like that? Joshua 10 is a little bit like going out into the middle of nowhere to experience the transition from day to night in order to see the wonder of night's lights. If, if we will just ponder a little while in Joshua 10, we will begin to see the bright lights of who God is light up the canvas of this story. This story is told 
so that we might see the Lord. Are you looking? Are you waiting? He wants you to see him in this story. These five kings, they come together and they form a strategy. And their strategy is to attack Gibeon because they believe that by attacking Gibeon, they can prohibit Israel from taking their cities. What they don't know is that there is no strategy that will prevail against the Almighty God. All right, let's look at scene two, verse six. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Don't give up on your servants. Come quickly and save us. Help us for all the Amorite kings living in the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua and all his troops, including all his best soldiers, came from Gilgal. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for I've handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. So Joshua caught them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. He defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them through the ascent of Beth Horon, struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel, the Lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky along the descent of Beth Horon all the way to Azekah, and they died. More of them died from the hail than the Israelites killed with the sword. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel. Sun, stand still over Gibeon. And moon over the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man because the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. If you look up into the sky and you're looking for that brightest star in the sky, it unveils itself in the truths seen in this story. Joshua and all of Israel went up to Gibeon, marching all night and surprised the enemy. But the Lord threw the enemy into confusion. Joshua and all of Israel sought valiantly to fight against the people that had come against Gibeon. But it was the Lord who provided the victory, seen especially in the statements about the hailstones coming on the enemies of the Lord. 
Joshua and the armies didn't kill anything close to the numbers of people with a sword that the Lord slew with the hailstones. Do you see that bright light of who God is? God is the one who fights the battles. He fights the battles. And in fighting the battles, the Lord communicates to his people, I'm the one that fights for you, and I'm the one that has victory. And because I'm with you, you have victory, so you don't need to be afraid. We're going to see in this story continually unfolding that there is no reason for the people of God who trust in the work of God to have any fear whatsoever. When God's people trust in the Lord who fights their battles, they have nothing to fear. The sky is lighting up with the truth of who God is. The sky really brightens with like the light of a meteor shower. When we see this scene of the story where Joshua asks the Lord to cause the day to change so that they might have victory. And God responds to Joshua and does something that has never been done before. The emphasis in this scene that makes this particular day a day like no other is not on the sun standing still. The emphasis on what makes this a day like no other is that God listened to Joshua. It's not that God had not listened to Abraham or Moses along the way before this moment with Joshua, but in this particular account, up to this point in Scripture, there has never been a stronger emphasis on the reality that God listens to His people than this moment. This is a moment where Joshua says something and the way this is described, it's described as if the roles have reversed. You see, it makes total sense that God says something and Joshua listens and does it. But the roles are described as reversing here. Joshua says something and God does it. It's this incredible emphasis that God really does listen to his people. Now the sky is as bright as day with the truth of who God is. God fights our battles. We have no reason to fear because when we cry out to our God, our God listens. He listens. It's amazing. That's grace. God fights our battles. We have nothing to fear. And God listens to our cries. Now the last part of this chapter is kind of like some flashbacks into some details of the battle that once again just point out who God is. So let's read through the rest of the chapter and point out a couple of these details as we get a wonderful picture of who God is. Starting in verse 16. Now the five defeated kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Makedah. 
It was reported to Joshua the five kings have been found. They are hiding in the cave at Makeda. Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and station men by it to guard the kings. But as for the rest of you, don't stay there. Pursue your enemies and attack them from behind. Don't let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has handed them over to you. So Joshua and the Israelites finished inflicting a terrible slaughter on them until they were destroyed. Although a few survivors ran away to the fortified cities. The people returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda, and no one dared to threaten the Israelites. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings to me out of there. That is what they did. They brought the five kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon to Joshua out of the cave. When they had brought the kings to him, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the military commanders who had accompanied him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So the commanders came forward, put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do this to all the enemies you fight. After this, Joshua struck them down and executed them. He hung their bodies on five trees, and they were there until evening. At sunset, Joshua commanded that they be taken down from the trees and thrown into the cave where they had hidden. Then large stones were placed against the mouth of the cave, and the stones are still there today. On that day, Joshua captured Makeda and struck it down with a sword, including its king. He completely destroyed it, and everyone in it, leaving no survivors. So he treated the king of Makeda as he had the king of Jericho. Joshua and all Israel with him crossed from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. The Lord also handed it and its king over to Israel. He struck it down, putting everyone in it to the sword, and left no survivors in it. He treated Libna's king as he had the king of Jericho. From Libna, Joshua and all Israel with him crossed to Lachish. They laid siege to it and attacked it. The Lord handed Lachish over to Israel, and Joshua captured it on the second day. He struck it down, putting everyone in it to the sword, just as he had done to Libna. At that time, King Horam of Gezer went to help Lachish, but Joshua struck him down along with his people, leaving no survivors. Then Joshua crossed from Lachish to Eglon and all Israel with him. They laid siege to it and attacked it. On that day they captured it and struck it down, putting everyone in it to the sword. He completely destroyed it that day, just as he had done to Lachish. Next, Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They captured it and struck down its king, all its villages, and everyone in it with the sword. He left no survivors, just as he had done at Eglon. He completely destroyed Hebron and everyone in it. Finally, Joshua turned towards Debir and attacked it, and all Israel was with him. He captured it, its kings and all its villages. They struck them down with the sword and completely destroyed everyone in it, leaving no survivors. He treated Debir and its king as he had treated Hebron, and as he treated Libna and its king. So Joshua conquered the whole region, the hill country, the Negev, the Judean foothills, and the slopes, with all their kings leaving no survivors. He completely destroyed every living being as the Lord God of Israel 
had commanded. Joshua conquered everyone from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and all the land of Goshen as far as Gibeon. Joshua captured all these kings and their land in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Be a lot easier not to read that. Not because of its length, but because of its content. You feel the theme? No survivors. It's hard to read that. But God has given this story so that we might see Him. And He wants us to see His grace. And on the backdrop of a judgment that left no survivors, what we see is that those who trust in the Lord escape judgment. Do you know this story isn't so much about the taking of land as it is a story of the protection and rescue of Gibeon. Do you recognize that these five kings are experiencing the divine judgment of God because of their wickedness, primarily because they came against Gibeon and Gibeon is crying out for help? Remember, Gibeon has aligned themselves with the Lord and the Lord's people. They have agreed to become servants in the Lord's tabernacle. And now they, as servants of the Lord and the Lord's people, are under threat from the people in the land upon whom divine judgment is coming. And they receive deliverance and salvation because the people of God trust the Lord. Because Gibeon trusts in the Lord, they are delivered. On the backdrop of a judgment that leaves no survivors, we are reminded that those who trust in the Lord are spared from judgment. It's grace. Israel didn't deserve God's grace. Gibeon didn't deserve God's grace. And by trusting in the Lord, they escape judgment. So much so that they have nothing to fear because they are experiencing the Lord fighting for them. 100% they are experiencing God fight for them. The battles that they face are battles where they experience victory because no one can stand against the purposes of God. But through trusting in the Lord, freedom from judgment, and God's listening ear changes everything. And now Israel, who had been rescued by God, has now become the rescuer because of God's grace. That's the story of grace. 
that those who are rescued become rescuers of those who would trust in the Lord. This is a story that's told so that we might see the Lord and be captured by the story of God's grace. This is the story that should be our story. If you think about what it means to be under the grace of God, every one of us in this room is deserving of a judgment that leaves no survivors because of our wickedness. And yet God in His kindness has sent a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ so that anyone who trusts in Him and His death and resurrection should experience forgiveness of their sins. They escape Judgment. Everyone who's trusted in Jesus Christ has experienced the gift of God's grace. And it's a gift that brings obligation. You see the obligation of God's grace in this story. God's grace obligates us to trust in the Lord. Trusting the Lord, the obligation of grace, should be in the disposition of Israel. Israel trusts fully in the Lord, but you notice Israel goes out and fights with everything they got. They bring every available person into the battle and they fight with all of what they have. The obligation of grace means that we leverage everything we are in trusting the Lord. There's no doubt that Israel in this story reveals the significance of grace because Israel in all their fighting cannot secure the victory. It's the Lord in all His efforts through Israel that brings the victory. But don't miss that the obligation of grace means that Israel has to do everything they can to gain victory. But the blessing of grace is seen in Gibeon. All Gibeon did was let somebody else fight the battle so that they experienced rescue. See, the obligation of grace is that you do everything you can in trusting the Lord, but the blessing of grace is you realize you've really never done anything to experience victory. It's the same thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, when he says, I am who I am because of the grace of God at work in me. But as an apostle, I worked harder than anybody else. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. See, the obligation of God's grace is that you give everything for the path of obedience. You give everything to avoid the path of disobedience. You give everything to persevere until the promises of God are your reality. You give everything to a life of helping people find Jesus Christ. And after you have given everything for that, you recognize you have given nothing because God's grace has been at work in you.
obligation and blessing. The obligation of God's grace is that you pray and you ask the Lord to work in and through you. The obligation of grace is you cry out to the Lord that the Lord might answer your plea. And the gift of that obligation is that God actually answers your prayers. This last week as we are over in uh, overseas and as I was interacting with some of the people who live in places around the world where there is very little testimony of who God is I was able to interact with some folks around some seminars and uh, as I was teaching and sharing it became obvious that in this one individual the Lord was particularly working and that lady she shared with her husband what the Lord was kind of doing in her life through that experience and her husband who was not in that time said I'd really like to talk to Kevin because maybe the Lord could help me with this area of my life and so he actually we found each other he said I'd really like to talk to you and I was like that sounds great and then we went our separate ways and we didn't have a way to contact each other it was not convenient there was over a thousand people there and he began to pray he he said Lord if you want me to talk with Kevin because you want to help me in this area of my life would you just cause us to cross paths and right after he uttered that prayer I walked into a room with over a thousand people and guess who I came face to face with and he said I think the Lord wants me to be encouraged by you because I just asked him that if he wants to help me through you that I'd come face to face with you and here we are Do you know that God's listening? Did you know that the strategies and plans this world devises against the purposes of God will not stand against the plans and purposes of God? And that if you pray according to the plans and purposes of God, God is listening to you and He will answer. Will you pray for that person in your life who does not know the Lord? Will you cry out on behalf of your neighbors? Will you cry out on behalf of this city and this county? Will you cry out because you believe that God has called you to live where you live to help people find a rescue from their sin and brokenness? Will you cry out to the Lord? That's the obligation of grace and the blessing of grace's obligation is that God will listen. And he will answer. And we will be a people who will say, this is a day like no other. Because God has listened to our cry. The grace of God obligates us to live a fearless life. You remember how many times in Joshua we are told, don't be afraid. The grace of God obligates us to live fearlessly, but the gift of that obligation is we really have nothing to fear. If God fights our battle and the victory is with God and God is with us and God is listening to every cry that comes out of our mouths, do we have anything to fear whatsoever if the grace of God has been extended to us through our faith in Jesus Christ so that we escape a great and coming judgment? Do we have anything to fear? 
No, the obligation of grace is that we live fearlessly in the world in which he's placed us and the blessing is we have nothing to fear. As I spent time with families and individuals who live in some of the darkest places of the world, where there is virtually no Christian witness and certainly no regular gatherings like this, I was reminded how important it is that those who are living on the edges of the frontier of reaching people for Christ live fearlessly. How will the gospel go forth into the harder places of the world if God's people are fearful of what man and the world might do to them? It doesn't work that way. The gospel only penetrates the darkest places of the world when God's people believe, I have nothing to fear and I will live fearlessly. Coming home, I was reminded that none of us will walk across the street to our neighbor's house. That none of us will walk down the hallway to our co-worker's desk. That none of us will pick up that phone and call that family member that does not know Christ until we all believe the gospel does not go forth until God's people live fearlessly and we have nothing to fear you know greatest the grace's ultimate obligation grace's ultimate obligation is to live for the rescue of gibeonites do you know there are people living around us everywhere we live who would prefer rescue if they knew about the rescuer. And there's nobody on the face of the earth except for God's people for whom God is fighting the battles. There is nobody on the face of the planet to whom God is listening like He listens to His people. And there is nobody on the face of the planet who can live fearlessly like God's people. And we are living where we live, when we live, with God's grace over us so that we might live under the obligation of offering rescue to the Gibeonites. And grace's great blessing is seeing somebody like your neighbor, your friend, your family member, your co-worker, find new life in Jesus Christ through the grace that's been extended to you. There's nothing like it. On the backdrop of a judgment that leaves no survivors, we must recognize that we, as God's people, are recipients of 
grace so that we might leverage our lives for the rescue of our world. That is a thread throughout the entire Bible. That God's people have experienced God's gracious gift of salvation and rescue so that they might be the light of God to a dark world that needs rescue. Will we not give everything for this? And if we do, we will only realize we have not given anything. We have simply trusted the Lord who has alone provided the victory. That is God's grace.